want you to uh, know that um, there are people in our gathering today that are fairly new with us. They've been actually with us for almost a year, but they're in our gathering today, uh, in some cases for the first time. And they're, uh, they're people that, that talk like they're familiar because they are. They're part of Grace Point, but they're in another part of the Grace Point reach. So it's really cool and welcome to those of you that are here, and um, I'm glad you're here. And um, uh, one of them uh, is my wife, who hasn't been here for about four months now and uh, is watching this morning. And um, I'm wearing a ribbon on her behalf. Today is a big uh, uh, run. Uh, I believe it's a cancer run of of all kinds of cancer. And I did not know this, but our uh, daughter handed out ribbons. You've seen the ribbons and people wear them and such. Um, If you were to see it closely, and you're welcome to come and snoop and stare at my pocket today (laughs) when church is over, but uh, mine's orange, which is the color for leukemia. So I did not know that at all. I, uh, but I, my heart goes out to Chris and, and Debbie and another Debbie and many of you who have uh, battled and in some cases continue the battle of, of some kind of cancer. Um, all that we just sang means a lot to me, but it, it's oxygen to you. It's really powerful. So praise God and praise God for what he's doing in lots of uh, lives and hearts. I, um, I hold in my hand a book. Mine says Holy Bible New International Version. It's just one of many versions, but it's good and it's solid and you can have confidence in it. But it's filled with commands, statements that are made by God. And let's agree, they're made by God uh, a long time ago, all right, like uh, centuries and millennia ago, that long. Millennia is a thousand years. It's really long, right? But they have implications and applications today. Or else what we're about to do doesn't make any sense, does it? It it would never explain why I spend so much time and am encouraged by leadership and the people of this church to spend that kind of time digging in and probing the truth of what God said and then being, uh, I sometimes refer to myself as the color commentary. My, my job's to kind of take the Bible and say, how does that work? What are the implications of that today in my life? And I, and I do that weekly. Sometimes I do it better than other times, uh, but I, that's my mission. I am I'm bringing that up because when God declares a command, pick your command, when he declares a command, there are basically two options humans have when it comes to whatever that command happens to be, right? Do not steal, let's say, one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, all right? So the first option would be that we choose with God's help, to keep that command. Not the thing we're trying to steal, but the command to not steal. With me? Everybody getting this? All right, it's really simple. We choose, that's one option, to obey the command as God stated it, because it does have implications for us. The word we use is obey. The other option, of course, 
is very, very different than that. It's where we can choose on our own to ignore it. To say either something tricky like that's for people that live long ago, you know, or to say, you know, only this time it won't matter so much. Or some other version that essentially dismisses that and washes our hands of that, right? And when we do those things, and I say we, when we do, because I'm just going to rat you out. I've never met a human that doesn't at times do those things. And you're hearing it from a guy. I, I had a scuffle at a grocery store last night. It wasn't really a scuffle, but it was in my heart. I was mad at the guy. Have you ever thought of ramming somebody with your grocery cart in a grocery store? Okay, there it is. That's my, I didn't do it. So you could say, well, no, I didn't really sin. But Jesus was the one that came along and said, if you thought it in your heart, you've done it. So I'm really, you know, I had a hard night's rest last night. And, and he looked at me in surprise, like, well, what's your deal? And I wanted, uh, I just wanted to go, what's your deal? That applies to you, what you just did. Anyway, it was, it was dumb. But in that moment, I had a sort of an option. Uh, I didn't perform real well in that moment, but I did by the time I got home. And it was a very lonely evening for me. My wife's in the hospital. Um, it's just me alone with the Holy Spirit. It was a rough one for a while. He's like, for real? You're going to preach tomorrow? Really? <laughs> so don't get in my way at a grocery store, people. Don't do it. It, it won't work out well for either of us. So. All right. Most reasonable people would say that kind of covers it, those two options on anything God says, right? Uh, do what God says, Period. Any questions? Yeah, that's really the, the, the inference of what I'm building up to. But here's a problem. We're human. And we have a history of finding a third or in some cases a fourth option when it comes to something God has said. In some cases very clearly in his word. And and um, the f there's a first example. I'm just not, you don't even need to turn to Genesis 3 unless you feel like it, but it's easy to find. It's the third page of the Bible. So anyway, uh, but here's the deal. There's, there's this example where God issued a command. And the command was more or less this. Uh, you can have it all. I made it all for you. It's to bless you and to benefit you and, frankly, to bring you pleasure, this place I've made for you called the garden and I want you to enjoy it climb the trees eat its fruit do whatever oh and by the way see that one tree in the middle I believe that's the tone if you really dig, dig into the narrative you find that that's really the tone that God's saying look this is one thing one limit stay away from that tree all right and of course you know the story uh, chapter three tells that the humans, there were only two at that time, actually, uh, I'm not going to say they went straight for that tree, but it was um, something that rolled out and all sorts of trouble, sort of think of it as waves after waves of trouble enter humanity, all right? 
You with me on the narrative so far? So, and God watched it all. Are we okay on that? That God wasn't like, oh, how did that happen? Right? Or what did you do? No, God saw it all. There's videotape. You know, God could say after further review, <laughs> and he could tell it with certainty, this is what happened. And I'm trying to sort of re- make this ridiculous in one sense. And then God comes to the people, and here's an interesting thought. From the very instance of sin, people I found reading that narrative again were just so determined to sort of nuance our way around it. We, 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 we try to skirt around it sometimes. And the very first example is Adam and Eve. So in chapter 3, you come to this. You don't have to turn. Just listen to this. Verse 11, chapter 3. God to Adam. I'm quoting. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Adam to God. Very next verse. Ready? The woman. Oh, oh, there's more. (laughs) He doesn't. Not to be outdone. The woman that you put here. (laughs) See what I'm doing? The woman that you put here uh, ate from the tree. And she gave me some of the fruit. and, And I ate it. That's a long answer, wouldn't you say? I think, yep, would have worked. Adam, have you eaten from the tree? Yep. Maybe with God it would be yes, sir, or something more formal. Okay, we're not done because God's done with him at that moment for a moment. And he turns to the woman and he says a verse later, verse 13, what have you done? Four words. Verse 13 as well, the woman answered to God, the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, before you start giving her all kinds of credit because she wasn't, you know, as slippery and uh, able to work around uh, the obvious, you know, booger on her finger. That's gross. That's a gross thought. That's not in my notes. That's not in my notes. Um, Okay. (laughs) Wait, where are we? Um, Why is this a big deal? Let me go there. She could have said, by the way, yeah. What have I done? I ate. That would have worked. That's fair enough. Uh, Why is this a big deal? Several reasons. First of all, start with this. God gives clear commands. Don't, don't say, I didn't understand. There's a few like that in the Bible, a few commands that you're going, huh? But the vast majority is emphatically clear. If you're God, wouldn't you want to make it? I'm not dumb. I would not dummy it down. That's not my point. But I would want to speak it in clear language, removing all doubt what I had in mind. 
That's my bias. That's my belief. And I think the Bible bears that truth. Um, He clearly expects what he commands to be obeyed. Now, I'm going to quote a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's just three chapters from the end of that wonderful book. You just need to go there again and again as I do. But in chapter 30, uh, I want you to remember these words. He says this, This command I'm giving you today is not too difficult for you, and it's not beyond your reach. So he's calling out some of our excuses, isn't he? Then he says, it's not kept in heaven so distant that you have to ask, who can go up there and bring it down here so we can hear it and obey it? Won't work with me, says God. He's not done. It's not kept beyond the sea so far that you must ask, who will cross the sea and bring it back to us so that we can hear it and obey it? Not going to work. Uh, nice try, we might say. Uh, it's No, the message is actually very close at hand, and it's actually on your lips, and even closer than that, in your heart, so that you can, may I insert two words, three words, if you choose, they're not in the text, obey it. Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14. But when we humans choose not to obey, let me just say what I started this message with. Admit it. What's our deal? You're looking at a guy that's like like made a profession at times in my in my ability to Not admit it. I didn't have to tell you about my scuffle at the grocery store. And I, you know, it's halfway done for entertainment purposes. (laughs) But really, the truth is, I'm cleaner today. I feel better because of last night and what God said and my bad sleep. Um, So, When humans choose not to obey, the right approach is to admit it. Would you agree with that? Just say you did it. Um, But that isn't always the the path people take. And when we add explanations for failing to obey, hear me now, we are dangerously close as people to excusing bad behavior by saying, well, it's not so bad. Not so bad. And when we do, we're we're repeating the sin of Adam and Eve. Aren't we? Seems to me. This practice eventually um, becomes the behavior that Isaiah would go on to denounce in chapter 5, verse 20. You ready for this? He said this, What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark. What sorrow for people who say that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. Uh, One observer noted 
about that passage and that principle. When people see no distinction between good and evil, destruction soon follows. If people say, for example, no one can decide for anybody else what is right or wrong, is that the world we live in or what? No one can say for anybody else what's really right or wrong. They may think that, for example, getting drunk can't hurt them. Or extramarital sex isn't really wrong as long as everybody's okay. Or money doesn't control their lives. But when they make excuses for their actions, they break down the distinction between right and wrong. And if people do not take God's word, the Bible, as the standard, soon all moral choices become fuzzy and hazy and negotiable. End quote. I've read those words years ago. Are they true today? Um, then it occurred to me in this series that we've begun. Uh, it's a very good description of a 325-year stretch of a time in Israel's history known as the Judges. That was a stretch of three-plus centuries. It's been dubbed correctly the Dark Ages of Israel's history. The Judges spans from the time of Joshua leading the people into Israel, getting them set in the various territories that belong to the 12 tribes, and dying. That's in 1375, okay? So you just sort of have a reference point. That was the start of the Judges. And it went all the way forward in, the old, in B.C., you count down, so it went from 1375 all the way to 1050 and the introduction of Israel's very first monarch, King Saul. Okay, 1375 to 1050, that's a long stretch of time. And to appreciate the persistent problems that were faced in these dark ages by God's people, we need to trace where the trouble began, and that's why I have my Bible open to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Would you just turn there this morning for uh, a kind of a launching pad, really, if you will? And Deuteronomy 7 is um, a, a like part of that 33 chapters I told you about earlier. It was smoke, smoking. <laughs> it was smoking. It was spoken by Moses at the end of a 40-year wandering in the wilderness. It was spoken, Deuteronomy, in one month, the very last month, as Israel was gathered on the eastern shore of the Jordan River, prepared now, finally, after 40 years, to cross into the land. Moses would not go with him, but these words of Deuteronomy would. So Moses speaks them, in this last month, um, and the people are, I can picture them. I've stood on that shore physically, but I've also imagined it from a historical perspective, and you would stand there nervously um, and, and 
and, and, and eagerly, sort of a mix of both. Like, wow, we're about to go. I don't know if you would have heard everything Moses said or just some of it because your eyes are on that land and finally, the word finally described how you felt. Um, they're about to enter, cross over into Canaan. The land they had been promised to take possession of, their new home. So in Deuteronomy 7, uh, Moses is, I'll say it again, 33 chapters all happened in a month. They comprise three basic messages. And in the first, the largest of those messages in chapter 7, Moses, um, the people are told through Moses in no uncertain terms how and what God wanted them to do in taking the land they're just days from entering. Everybody with me now? Because that's important because what we're about to read in these six verses is, uh, let me give you a warning. It's, uh, it's tough reading. It's rough in lots of ways. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and to drive out before you many nations, and he lists some of them. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and some throw in the termites and stuff like that. Seven, watch this, look at the description of these. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, and you have defeated them, he's not done, then you must destroy them, some versions say completely, New International says totally. In case you're not clear, he goes on. Make no treaty with them. Show them, these words are in the Bible, no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me and to serve other gods, small g in my Bible, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Verse 5, this is what you are to do to them. I told you it's hard reading. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. These are all forms of false gods. Bottom line, get rid of them. Exterminate them. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. God commanded Israel here to take possession of the land, wiping out its inhabitants entirely don't deport them don't put them in camps or prisons kill them eliminate them entirely um we just read it they're to be destroyed Make no peace. When you read words like show them no mercy, it's as dark as that sounds. It's like, what if some of them are really sorry? 
get rid of them. Some of you are near the edge now. God said that? Sure you got that right? Why would God issue such harsh commands? Destroy them? He gave reasons. They're going to turn your children away from following me. At the very least, don't you put that on a priority list that's high on God's heart? He not only wants your heart, he wants your kids' hearts and your grandkids' hearts. Mine too. Uh, Their religions, Asherah poles, Baal, and, uh, and the like, are essentially parts of religions that were very permissive. They're sort of, uh, we could call them anything goes religion. You know people like that? You know those religions? It's kind of, look, um, let's just have a little scoop of whatever we need to have a good time. Religion. And um, it appeals, really, to that wide road. Remember Jesus' words? Enter by the wide road. Because anybody can come and have a great time. Doesn't matter. What was it? Somebody said it. Enter by the narrow road. And how narrow is that road? Well, try John 4. That's in Matthew 7, what we just quoted. Try Jesus' words in John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way. He did not say a way. If he said that, I would be much softer in my voice right now. Well, Jesus is a way among many ways. There are lots of ways. Your way's okay. You get that? It's called um, uh, polytheism in the Old Testament. It's pluralism today that says, you know, you can't, you can't say you're the way. No, I'm not saying I'm the way. I never told anybody that. I do know the way. And he is the way. And it is a, it is a savior named Jesus. And he's the truth and he's the life. And then he said this. The ones that go, well, Jesus wouldn't be that harsh. This must be an Old Testament God that was really ticked off. But Jesus came along and just sort of recast this image of God. Really? Do you realize how often Jesus talked about eternal damnation? He did. Enter by the narrow road because those that don't, and there are many that won't, Jesus said, it will not turn out well. They will... They will spend eternity separated from me. Matthew 25, he took a whole chapter to talk about sheeps and goats. And he says, the sheeps get to go with me for all of eternity, and the goats get punished for a couple of weeks, and then they can cross over. No, it's all. It's forever. That's right. The, The New Testament talks the same way. In Luke 16, Jesus was the one that told about the rich man and Lazarus. And there is a set chasm between heaven and hell, and it will not be broached. This is hard. You're going, wow, this is hellfire and brimstone stuff from a Baptist minister who hates people to get in his way at a grocery store. You know, (laughs) it's not true. All right, you're, you're with me. I know you are. Um. 
chapter 9, he, he makes another statement. Would you just flip the page up? In my Bible, it's just one page. Verse 5, look at this. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity. He's talking about his people still, that you're going to take possession of this land, that you're special to me, but on account of their wickedness and the wickedness of those nations that the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So back to this question. Why? What would God, why would God command Israel to do something that, that appears so, let's just say it, draconian? Wipe them out entirely. Destroy them completely. I just want to confess something. I spent a lot of time on an answer to that question. And then it occurred to me about an hour into it that maybe I was worried that you would somehow find fault in God. I took it upon myself to assume something, that, and that is that this is too harsh. You may not like my voice or my, the intensity of the, a moment or two, but I was thinking, you know, maybe people, um, that's a God that sounds so punitive. Um, and you know what? I don't need to tell you where we live. And it's politically correct. Your greatest sin today in this region is to not be nice. Say anything that's crossways about anybody or anything, and you will be, you will be chopped up. Um, so in our politically correct world, what we just read is borderline barbaric. Let me turn, I didn't come up with an answer, but I do want to turn my question around. Does it matter why God would say this? Now stay with me. I'm not here to insult anybody. But does it matter why when God commands something? Is it necessary for you to absolutely have an airtight answer to why? Uh, if God commanded something, let me say it another way, shouldn't that stand on its own? Hey, let me put the, the way the bumper sticker said, if God said it, does that settle it? The sticker used to say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Remember that? I don't like that sticker at all. I want to go up to a bumper, they're not popular anymore, and cut out the middle section. God says it, that settles it whether or not you believe it. That's the truth. You, see, you with me? It's not a sleight of hand. God says it, I believe it, that settles it. No, 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 no. God says it whether or not I believe it. And that settles it. Um, so, this is about Judges. Would you turn now to Judges <laughs> chapter 1? <laughs> We're only going to go 10 chapters this morning in Judges. No, I'm kidding. Um, it seems to me that that is the story of the Judges. Um, God's people, when they entered the land, you probably knew this, anticipated it at least, did not fully carry out God's command. They didn't. And um, we're told seven times in the first chapter that 
they did not drive out the wicked people that God told them to eliminate entirely. In fact, seven times you read just a, a little sample so you know that I'm not making this up. Verse 19, the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country. But look what it says next in Judges 1, verse 19. But they were unable to drive the people from the plains. And it goes on seven more times in chapter 1, exactly like that. Verse 21, the Benjamites, however, did not drive out, drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites to the day of this writing. And it goes on and on like that. And, and you might wonder, why? Why would so many tribes, there are 12 of them, why would they fail in something that we spent time in Deuteronomy 7 to establish is God's emphatic no no mystery plan and we're kind of given in this opening chapter kind of their answer if they were to put it into words about four or five times we're told that these people said you know what I don't want to drive them all out because we got a use for those people we're going to make them slaves. Free labor. And that's exactly what they did. Again and again, we're told, look at verse 28 as a sample. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Four more times. Take the time to read this opening chapter, and you'll read Again and again that these people, drop down to verse 35, the Amorites were determined also to hold out in these different places when the power of the tribes of Joseph increased. They too pressed them into forced labor. So God's appraisal of his people's failure to obey him fully, we could say, was a deep disappointment. I want you to see why I say that in chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal, that's by the Jordan, just north of the Dead Sea. Went up means went west a little ways to Bochim, this town of Bochim, and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but You shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you. It was your job to drive them out, remember? And their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things, all of Israel went, oh no, what have we done? The text reads, the people wept loudly. Did you catch the name of this town, Bochum? It actually, the the actual name Bochum is a name that refers to weeping. They are the weepers. So again and again and again, they failed to carry out God's explicit command. And they, in the result, wept deeply. Some of us might sympathize with their sorrows because... Um, undoubtedly they felt they did some good. I suspect if you ask them, how do you think this went? They'd say, well, you know, we were on a, we did some good things. But we, we didn't do it the way God said. Our, uh, they, they fell short 
of full obedience is what the text is teaching. They did some good, but they ignored doing it completely as God had commanded. Um, Let's call that what it is, partial obedience. Okay? Which is at least better than disobedience, right? It is sort of a trick question. Is partial obedience as good as or, 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 or different than disobedience? Consider James' appraisal of that. He was a half-brother of Jesus, great leader in the New Testament. He, his explanation of that question, if that's something on our minds, according to James, the person who keeps all of the law except one, keeps all of the laws except one, is as guilty as the person who has broken all of the laws. And he's saying, in case you're blown away by that, but you need more detail, he adds this. For the same God who says you must not commit adultery, we get that, also said you must not murder, we get that. You're ready for it now, right? So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, good for you, said James. Not so fast. If you murder somebody um, but don't commit adultery, he concludes you have still become a lawbreaker. And you need somebody to forgive you. Um, This habit of partial obedience didn't go away in this three-century span of time. Uh, I mentioned that Um, The judges' period ended when Saul showed up, made the first king. Chapter 9 of Samuel, 1 Samuel, tells that. Nine and six chapters later, chapter 15, uh, Samuel comes to Saul. I'm paraphrasing this. It's a beautiful passage. If we had another half hour, I'd tell you about it. All right, we'd read it. But in 1 Samuel 15, There's a powerful exchange between the prophet Samuel and Saul. Saul was told to eliminate entirely the Amalekites. It's more graphic than what we read by a long shot. Destroy everybody, men, women, children, animals, everything, because of what these evil Amalekites did to my people. This is spoken by a holy God, and it was clearly communicated from the prophet to Saul. Now go do it. They wiped out a lot of people, but they spared the king. His name was Agag. And um, they spared some of the choice animals because they thought that would be a waste of meat. Might as well add to our flocks and for a variety of other reasons. And God sent Samuel back to Saul and said, Hi, Saul. uh, Listen, I'm here to check on you. And um, how did it go? And Saul says, We did exactly what God said. And I'm sure his dentures dropped. I'm sure he went 
you're just, you're kidding me. I didn't just hear you say that. Um, and Saul said, uh, or Samuel says to him, you, you, you were supposed to kill them all. And Saul said, well, we, we saved King Agag. We spared him, is, was his word. And we spared the choicest animals. Uh, my men did it, actually. <laughs> that was his excuse on the f- surface. They did it. And, and, and there's this moment where Saul says, uh, or Samuel says, what's that sound? If you killed them all, took care of all those animals, then what's that sound I'm hearing of animals in the background? Maybe he was had. And God rebukes him and says, to obey is better than sacrifice. You, you, you were keeping those animals to sacrifice to me and you completely or partially obeyed me, which is a serious problem. Here's the deal. The choice is ours. What God commands, we must obey. And we must obey it fully. Not not occasionally, not partially, but fully daily. To partially obey is to almost obey. That's where my title came from. If that defines you in some way, any way, I think you need to repent today. I said that to myself plenty in preparation for this message. And I was, I was on a roll. I was doing pretty good in the obedience column and the grocery store. And it was just, it's just like God to say, don't, don't get on the high horse, dude. I think he calls pastors dude. I don't know. But God says things to us like serve me. Use the gifts I've given you. Are you doing that? If your answer is, well, I used to. Obey him fully. God says, give me back a tenth of what I've given you. Well, how much has he given you? Everything you've got. Are you doing that? Well, sometimes I forget about it or whatever. Uh, God says, be with my people and worship with me. Worship in the fellowship of other believers. I know we have COVID, but that's, that's, that's not really going to, I mean, it's become a great option. And, and I, I'm not calling out people that are staying away because of COVID. I'm simply saying this. There are some people that, are, that have now a new reason to stay away. And, and it's really about a new habit that doesn't include God or God's people. What's that about? Here, here's what I'm saying. Um, if these things sort of or partially are happening in your life, and if God right now, I, sh- I got quiet and, and God said, hey, I, I'm going to ask you about those things. And if your answer is uh, a moment for you that is awkward. Um, Or maybe for you in that moment, it feels a little bit like an excuse. 
I'm just going to take a stab and say I think it might be. It probably is. If reading about Israel and Saul this morning, hearing about that, is like looking at a picture of you, if your obedience to God is in some way partial, uh, it's time to turn to God because he wants to change that. he'll, He'll do the work, but you've got to give him full access. Um. It starts with repent. I'm sorry. Don't add words. In fact, the best way to move forward from here, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And he will. Let's bow our heads if if you would join me now. We're going to sing a song that is uh, musically... Um, a petition. It's really, when we sing words like have your way in me, there's implications for those words. Uh, It's called surrender. And it involves something that we don't do easily with enemies, but God's not an enemy. He's a friend. And he's saying, surrender. Surrender to my authority in absolute terms. When we say, Lord, have your way with me, I surrender. If there's something that needs to be confessed right now, would you do that as we sing? Lord, we, uh, we know that there's a, um, a confluence of your clear teaching and commands. Um where sometimes we don't go all the way there. We do it partially. And I know you're calling some of us to a a more honest and sincere level, a pure level and form of commitment. I pray that as we move in response to your spirit, we would uh, take the next steps to fully obey you. We ask for your leadership now as we Sit quietly before you and join our voices in song. Move us. Clean us. Scrub us clean of impurity that holds us back. We surrender now. In Jesus' name.